<clears throat> All right, we're coming today to talk about justification or right legal standing before God. As I was sitting here thinking about this before class this morning, I thought this is just something that no one would ever believe unless the Bible told it to you. It is just so outstanding, so amazing, so incredible. It isn't anything that would be made up by an unbeliever or by the world, this doctrine of justification or how do we gain legal standing, right legal standing before God. Here's the schedule we're on. Today, justification. If we finish today, there may be a little bit left over for next week. Then next week, adoption. Um, and then uh, March 16th, sanctification. Um, Easter, no class, as Bob said, March 23rd, and then sanctification, part two. This is growing in the Christian life, growing in likeness to Christ. I'm going to pause and do one week on April 6th on this controversy over the meaning of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which has differing interpretations among different groups in the church today, and then, um, and then perseverance of the saints, or remaining a Christian, April 13th. So that's the projected schedule. Uh, if I get a little behind, we'll just catch up the next week. So we've been talking for several weeks now about this whole complex of events that uh, God has in store for us, this complex of events that apply to us the benefit of Christ's uh, death and resurrection on our behalf. And it, it's called, often in systematic theology, it's called the order of salvation, or the order of events in which salvation is applied to us. Um, so election, we talked about a few weeks ago, where God chooses us before the foundation of the world. Then the gospel call, uh, that is the message of the gospel uh, that, uh, that comes to us. God gives us new life and regeneration so that we are enabled to, uh, to respond to the gospel call. And then conversion, which was the last thing we talked about, including faith and repentance. We repent of our sin uh, against God and then put our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. What happens after our saving faith and, and repentance, uh, the first thing we come to then is justification, and that's the, uh, that's the item we'll talk about today. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And in addition to that, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. So what we're doing in this lesson is unpacking a lot more of what you may have heard as a child. If you trust in Jesus, he'll forgive your sins. Well, he'll forgive your sins has a really rich and full meaning, and that's what we're going to talk about today, a much more in-depth understanding of these things. Justification includes a legal declaration by God. Justification, to justify someone in the terms of uh, the biblical language is to declare someone to be righteous. And there are instances where that word, the Greek word dikaiao, is used in that sense to declare someone righteous or just. So Luke 7:29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. The King James Version and the New King James translate that, they justified God. That is, they said that God was just or righteous. And that's the sense of the word there uh, in uh, Luke 7.29. Uh, Romans 4.5, And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
where it says God justifies the ungodly, it means he declares the ungodly to be just or righteous. So again, that's the sense of this word, to justify. Uh, Romans 8, 33 to 34 use the word in this sense. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is God who justifies. And there it's put in, the, it's put in contrast to condemning. Now, condemning someone is to declare someone, say, you're guilty, right? That's to condemn. And so justify is to say, you're righteous. It's the opposite of condemning. Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, this is an interesting verse because in the Greek translation of it, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, again, the word dikaiao is used here uh, in the Old Testament. And it is another verse that gives evidence showing that the meaning has to be declared to be righteous. And why I'm going to say that's important is a little bit later we're going to come to a Roman Catholic view of justification. A Roman Catholic view of justification is that God makes you righteous inside. He makes you good. He changes you until you're perfect. And they will say justification means make someone to be righteous. But that meaning won't fit this verse. See, if, it's, if, it's, if it means to make a bad person good, see how that verse would read then. He who justifies the wicked, if it means to make, it good, make the person good, he who makes good the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. If you make a wicked person good, the Lord would be happy. So it, it's talking about earthly judges. And it's saying, you know, if you're a judge and there's a, a wicked person who comes in, and then you say he's not guilty, that's wrong. And if you're a judge, and you've got a righteous person who hasn't committed any crime, and he comes into your courtroom, and you condemn him, that's wrong. That's an abomination to the Lord. Again, it's showing that this justify language is in the realm of legal declaration of wh whether someone is guilty or innocent. And I'll back up, and I'll go over that one more time. If it meant... He who makes the wicked good, it wouldn't be an abomination to the Lord. But if it means he who says the wicked is good or righteous is an abomination to the Lord, then the verse makes sense. That that's, the, that's the meaning of the word. And God is saying, of course, to human judges, don't do that. And the puzzle is, the puzzle is, how can God then do that for us if it's not right for a human judge to say to a criminal, you're innocent? How can God say we're innocent? That's not fair, is it? And that's, of course, the objection that Muslims will have against the whole Christian faith. It's wrong to say someone is righteous when the person is not righteous. And the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification would again raise an objection against this doctrine and say, wait a minute, how can that be? How can God say that you're righteous if you're not? Well, that's the mystery. We're going to find out here in a few minutes. Sometimes people say that justification is then forensic. Forensic meaning it has to do with legal proceedings or proceedings in a court of law, declaring someone innocent or righteous. Well, um, what God does in justification, after we have believed in Christ, after we have trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, then 
After we have done that, as a result of our trusting in Christ, God declares us to be just in his sight. He declares that we have no penalty to pay for sin. Here's some examples of that teaching. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free of guilt, free of condemnation. That means no, no penalty to pay. Romans 4, 6 to 8, David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. See, there's no penalty to pay for sin. No penalty. Lawless deeds are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So God declares us to be just in his sight. He doesn't count our sins against us. But forgiveness of sins is only one part of justification. Forgiveness makes us morally neutral, but does not give us favor with God. Now I was trying to think of some examples of how that would be. Um, let's say that uh, let's say the student uh, goes to ASU and flunks all his classes the first year. And then through some special arrangement, uh, I'm not I'm sure this isn't going to happen, but through some special arrangement, uh, some administrator waves a magic wand and says, okay, I know you did a crummy job this year, but all those Fs are wiped out. You've got nothing, not, no marks against you on your transcript. And then the student says, oh, great, do I get my diploma now? What hasn't he done? What, what, what didn't he do yet? Well, but he's got to do something more to graduate. He's got to not, not just have his Fs wiped out from his freshman year. He has to go to class. Yeah, he has to pass quite a few classes, in fact. So just to get your Fs wiped out, doesn't mean you've earned any credit for any classes to graduate, right? Making sense? So kind of by analogy, getting all our sins forgiven is fine, but that just leaves us at neutral. There's no positive record of obedience. Now you think back to Adam and Eve in the garden, when God put them in the garden and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, he was looking for obedience. But don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he looked for obedience in that way too. And I don't know how long that would have gone on, but God was looking for a period of time in which they would perfectly obey him and thereby earn or merit his approval. But they didn't do it. They failed. Now, for us, if God forgives all our sins, that's good, but that's not enough because we don't have any lifelong record of perfect obedience where God could say, well done, I welcome you into my kingdom. You've served me, you've obeyed me perfectly. Where's that? Where's that? All we've gotten is forgiveness. We're at neutral. Or, or another example, if you go to pass your driver's test the first time and you run a stop sign and hit a car or something, they scratch it all out. They say, fail, fail, fail. Well, then, then if the instructor says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll tear that off, I'll throw it away, but you've got to come back next week and pass the driving test, right? So the same way, uh, uh, just getting the bad mistakes forgiven is not enough. You have to do something positive to show that you passed. And what have we done to show that we passed? Once we get our sins forgiven, nothing yet. So there's something else. God declares us to be righteous in his sight, but in order to do that, we need him to give us the merits of perfect righteousness. And here is where he gives us a gift of the record that Jesus earned. It'd be like 
somebody going through college and getting all A pluses, and then you getting the transcript uh, credited to your account. But here it is Jesus who has done that in a moral sense. So Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah predicting this, says, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That is something positive that God has put over us. Or Romans 3, 21 to 22, but now the righteousness of God. This isn't just forgiveness, it's positive righteousness that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how it comes. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So... God saw Abraham's faith and counted it to him, reckoned it to him, as if he had a record of obedience or righteousness. Romans 4, 6-8, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, etc. But then there's this positive idea there, counting righteousness apart from works. Or Romans 5:19, by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, many will be made righteous, made positively righteous. Now, how can God declare us to be righteous? Here's the mystery. If you're not, God can declare us to be righteous because he imputes, he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Now, impute is a word means to think of as belonging to. So God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Abraham four, uh, Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him, it was thought of as belonging to him as righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 30, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who's, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has become to us righteousness. Or here's another verse. It's, I didn't get this on the outline, but it's here on the, on the overhead, and it should be on your outline because it's a key verse in this regard. For his sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, for our sake, God the Father, he made Christ, him, the Father made Christ, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that was when he put, God put our sins on Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's in Christ, that we become something that we weren't. We become the righteousness of God. We become the, the moral goodness of God by being in Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.9, Paul says that he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's his own life, his own record of obedience. It's, it's not perfect. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's contrasting it with his own life of obedience to the law. That wasn't a good enough record. But here's a righteousness from God. It comes through faith. It depends on faith. And that's a gift that's given to us. So Christ's life, Christ's whole life record of obedience to God is thought of as ours. And then that's why God gives righteousness to it. He imputes it to us. He thinks of it as belonging to us. Romans 4, 6 to 8, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
Now, how can that be? Well, God can declare us to be just because he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. I mentioned that. Imputation, then, is essential to the heart of the gospel. Imputation, that is, thinking of Christ's righteousness as being ours. It's essential to the heart of the gospel. If God didn't do this, then what's the alternative? The alternative is, if justification changed us internally and then declared us to be good, something happened. It's back. Thank you. If justification changed us internally and then declared us to be righteous based on how good we actually were, see, if God said, Wayne, you trusted in Christ, all right, there's... There's 20% goodness in you. All right, after a few years, there's 30% goodness in you. There's 40% goodness in you. I had a long struggle. See, and even anybody who might live a life of just obedience and holiness and sacrifice might get to 80%, who knows. But but really, it's never good enough because... I don't know why. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> okay. It couldn't be good enough because we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life because of remaining sin. And there's anybody who doesn't have remaining sin? Just oh, okay, okay. You're not going to hold up your hand anyway. So, so, but I mean that's true. If 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 God was only going to declare us righteous based on how good we were inside, how perfect our heart was, how perfect our thoughts and attitudes were, how perfectly we loved God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, if God was going to do that based on perfect obedience, we'd never be perfect we'd never be declared righteous. It'd be hopeless. Moreover, there'd be another problem. If we didn't have this forgiveness for past sins, but God only declared us righteous when we were perfect based on our own moral perfection, there would be no provision for forgiveness of past sins committed before we were changed internally. And therefore, we'd never have confidence that we are right before God. That's why, and, and the, the, the secular world, the unbelieving world, is not going to dream of this doctrine of justification. They wouldn't make it up. They're, they're, the whole idea of the secular world is, I hope I can be good enough. Well, you can't. So you need righteousness coming from somebody else. This means that we, in, in, in holding to this view, which I'm, I'm teaching is the traditional, classic, historic, orthodox, Protestant view of justification, we differ then with the Roman Catholic view of justification. And it was at this particular point that the Reformation focused. Martin Luther, in 1517, beginning the Protestant Reformation uh, by nailing his 95 theses to the wall of Wittenberg uh, Church in Germany, um, he began to teach many things in contra contrast to Roman Catholic doctrine, but this key doctrine of justification by Faith alone was the key difference. And here was the Roman Catholic teaching, which still is today. Justification, according to Roman Catholic view, it, it, just before I get to the what's on the slide there, Roman Catholics will mingle together in one idea what we call justification, legal righteousness, and sanctification, making us holy inside. And they'll make them just one idea. And so justification in a Roman Catholic view is something that changes us internally and makes us more holy within. It, they will call it the sanctifying and renewing of the, inward, of the inner man. And so righteousness is infused into us 
not imputed. The picture that I get of infusing righteousness in us is like um, uh, pumping gas into your car. You kind of infuse the gas into the car, and when you fill it up, then it's full. Well, in a Roman Catholic view, um, by the merits of Christ and by grace, but obtained through our obedience and attendance to the sacraments, God infuses more and more grace into us, and we get progressively a little bit better, a little bit better. But are you perfect by the time you end this life in Roman Catholic teaching? Are you perfect at the end of, the, at the end of life? No, you're not. So then there's an additional doctrine which Protestants have not held and which I don't believe is taught in the Bible, but that is you have to go to purgatory after you die for a time of additional purification and more cleansing of, of evil and more uh, infusion of, of righteousness until you get to the point where you're perfectly pure and then God says, okay, you're righteous and I can let you into heaven. So it's a long process. But if you believe in that view, you can't really ever have confidence that you are accepted before God. It's a very significant difference. And of course, that troubled Martin Luther so greatly that try as he would, he could not make himself right before God. And then he began to read in the scriptures that by grace you have been saved through faith. And uh, that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We'll get to some other verses on the fact that it comes through faith in just a minute or two. But um, in a Roman Catholic view, then, people cannot be sure if they are in a state of grace. People can experience varying degrees of justification, but our eternal life with God is based then both on God's grace and our merits. That is how far we've come along in the process of making ourselves more holy. And so, uh, with, with respect, um, uh, I still would have to differ very significantly with Roman Catholic, with our Roman Catholic friends at this point, and say so we have a difference here that that is uh, probably the most significant difference of all differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants. It's this doctrine of justification. Uh, to support the Roman Catholic view, many passages that put that speak of the entire salvation process are put in the label of justification, but I would say they wouldn't belong there. This classification only blurs the issue and makes forgiveness of sins and right legal standing before God a matter of our own merit and not a free gift from God. Therefore, this blurring of distinctions ultimately destroys the heart of the gospel. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, free gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, this is a wonderful verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is where we stand if we have trusted in Christ. On the basis of our faith, um, uh, or our faith as an instrument for uh, obtaining this justification, not because of any merit on our own, God gives us this status of righteousness, and there is no condemnation that we have before him. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, justification then, and we have to insist on this, justification comes to us entirely by God's grace. That is, it's unmerited. Grace is unmerited favor. It comes to us entirely by God's grace, not on account of any merit in ourselves. Romans 3, 23 to 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this classic text 
It's quoted again and again. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. And the this refers back to this whole previous sentence. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't say, God, I'm so proud I've made myself good before you. I've made myself righteous before you. There's no room for that. No room for boasting because it doesn't come as a result of our works. Now, now we've got to tie this together with what we talked about in the previous session. We talked about faith and repentance. This is tied directly to faith. So the Bible says God justifies us through our faith in Christ. Galatians 2.16 is very clear in that regard. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Here the sequence is made very clear. We've believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Faith comes first, and then for the purpose of being justified by that faith, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, that means obedience to God, no one will be justified. Again, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be true. Now get out of the realm of the intellectual and theoretical and say, is that true in your heart? If you, if you believe that by faith in Christ, God has declared your sins forgiven and declared that you have Christ's righteousness, does that give you a sense of peace before God? See, it should, I see Clyde going like this. Yeah, it should. It should. It should give you a sense of peace before God. Not a sense of anxiety and worry. Oh God, I don't know if I'll ever be right before you. Oh God, I don't know if I'll ever make her into heaven. That's not peace with God. Peace with God is, Jesus, I've trusted you. God, I've, I've, I believe your word, that, that, you've, that you have given me justification on account of my faith in Christ. Why faith? Why does God justify us based on faith? I mean, there could be other kind of attitudes of mind or dispositions of mind that God could have chosen? Why, doesn't, why didn't he say we are justified by happiness? What would you do if you had to be justified by happiness? Hmm? Well. Hmm? You have to always kind of go around being happy all the time, hope you're happy enough. But that's effort. How about if God said, well, I'll justify you based on kindness. What would you do? You try to be kind to people, but that's your own effort, right? I mean, anything else you can think of is going to be effort. What if God said, I'll justify you by peace? Well, you'd go around like an Eastern meditation person, humming mm, all day long trying to be at peace. But it's still effort. What if he said, I'll justify you by um, truthfulness? Well, then you always tell the truth, but it's effort. I'll justify you by um, mm, strength.
strength, and you lift, out, lift weights all day long. I mean, any, anything you could think of is, besides faith is going to be effort, isn't it? And any, even any attitude of mind that you can think of. You can try to work yourself into a state of happiness, work yourself into a state of peace or kindness. Or do you, do you see what I'm saying? But faith is the one attitude of heart, at least as far as I know. Faith is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. See, faith is trusting somebody else. Okay, now I'm going to tell you what happens every Sunday morning. I come in here before the 8.15 service, and I bring the original of these handouts, and I set them on this chair. Garth isn't around. I don't see Garth. But I trust Garth to show up and photocopy those. And lo and behold, I go to the 8.15 service, I come back here, and here, Garth has got it all handed out. It's all photocopied. During that whole service, did I think, oh, I wonder if I have to go make the copies. I wonder if I have to go Xerox. I wonder if Garth is going to show up. I wonder if he'll... No. I trusted him, right? So trusting Garth is the exact opposite of going and doing myself. Am I making sense? See, see faith is another word for trust. And, and, and trust in a person is, is the opposite of trying to do it yourself. You trust another person to do something. And faith in God, or trust in God, is the opposite of trying to make yourself good enough. It's saying, God, I give up. I can't make myself good enough before you. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, Lord, I can't. I trust you. I give up. That's why the wisdom of God is shown in making our justification come to us based on our faith, because it gives glory to God, ultimately. It's the opposite of trusting. So Paul makes that reasoning explicit in Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, that is unmerited favor, and be guaranteed to all his descendants. It depends on faith in order that it may come by grace, not something that we earn. Is that, before I go on to look at that James passage, um, tell me your name again. Lindell. In the Catholic scenario that you mentioned, if a person in the Catholic faith loved God and believed that Christ died for their sins and yeah. believed that they are born again and they yeah. but but then they begin to labor under this other system. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bit confusing to try to work through. Are they saved and they're just... Yeah. I mean, a lot of people yeah, in, a, in a traditional church that don't know any of this either, and they're kind of laboring under yeah. similar things. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful question, Lindell. Um, I, I have known many genuine believers in the Roman Catholic Church who I think are justified by faith alone in spite of the doctrine. They, well, <laughs> I don't think it's sorted out correctly in their minds, but through reading the Bible or hearing the Bible, the message of salvation through faith in Christ has reached through to them anyway. 
But you know, I've had a number of Roman Catholics say, I went to the Catholic Church for decades before I understood this. And then a new priest came and he began to explain it. Or then I started reading my Bible in a Bible study and it became clear and I trusted in Christ. Just a friend of ours, just Margaret and I was just thinking about, who, who, um, who uh, really had a love for, for God and a love for the Word of God, but it was only the last four or five years of her life and she, had, she was, you know, you know, at least in her 60s. And so, and, and what you say about liberal, more liberal Protestant churches that sort of believe the Bible, but they're not sure and they don't preach this clearly, there are people there that are born again, but others who aren't because the message hasn't been made clear. And so it's hard to say in advance. And I'm not saying, I am not saying that no one in the Catholic Church is saved or no one in liberal Protestant churches who don't explain this clearly is saved. But I'm saying it's much more difficult. And often if they are truly saved, that faith has come in spite of the official doctrine, not because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. Good. What else? Anything else? Way in back. Uh, is it, who, Vicky. Some um, Protestant denominations believe in, that you have to be baptized mm -hmm. for salvation. Isn't mm -hmm. that salvation by works? Mm-hmm, I think so. <laughs> um, here again now, our, our friends in the Christian church, just uh, um, churches of Christ, in many ways would teach this, but they would add baptism to it, and they would see it as a sign of faith, outward faith. It looks to me like it's faith plus. Uh, faith plus you have to be baptized, which is an additional work. Um, and so um, it, my observation is many, 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 many thousands of people in, the, in Christian churches, uh, Church of Christ, where, there's, where they believe the Bible, are born again, but it's in spite of this faith plus you have to be baptized. It's not because of that teaching. And I would say that, that really compromises uh, the faith alone aspect. Yeah. Pammy. Faith is a gift of God, isn't it? Mm. Faith is a gift from God. I think so. He gives us the faith to believe in. I then, think so. But then it's... I think it's part of what happens in regeneration. That new spiritual life enables us to respond in faith to the saving message of the gospel. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Go ahead and take the mic back. Yep. Got to say well, this. Well, as I'm listening to your example, it sounds like that doesn't need to be exercised. It's something that is just natural and opposite of, um, you know, depending on ourselves is what you're saying. Yeah, but it's something. It's a, there's a definite decision. Lord, I will trust in you. And I had that example of clinging onto my briefcase, which represented sin, and then turning over to Christ. It is a. It's a decision. Definite decision of the will that we exercise. God doesn't believe for. He gives us the ability to believe, but He doesn't believe for us. So we decide to trust in Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, I trust you. Forgive my sins. Yeah. I can't do it myself. Yes. What's your name? Uh, my name's David Craig. I'm a pastor from San Diego, and I'm teaching through your uh, systematic theology in our church right now. And I have, a, I have a question in regards to, I have two different ladies in, in my church that have emailed me since we've been uh, away 
that are wrestling with whether or not they're saved because one is living uh, in fornication, basically she's living with a man, and another is living with an unbelieving spouse but is wrestling with whether or not she's saved on the basis of... Uh, what I'm asking is how does faith and repentance tie together and... Uh, where I'm coming from primarily is from a lordship salvation position, but I'm just wondering how how do you explain that to somebody who's living in sin and trying to understand where the grace comes in and where the repentance comes in? Well, I don't know the individual situations in detail, so I can respond in general, but the response might not apply rightly to those situations, David. But if someone say, came to me and said, look, I've, I've, I've asked Jesus to forgive my sin, and uh, I've, I've repented of my sin, I've asked him to forgive my sin, I've trusted him for it, and I'm still living with my boyfriend that I know I shouldn't be living with, I would say, I don't know if you've really trusted in Christ or not. I'm not going to say you have, I'm not going to say you haven't, but there is a willful pattern of disobedience here, which you know is disobedience, and it's willful, you've chosen it, I wonder if you're still hanging on to that sin that you're asking Jesus to forgive you from. And so, um, and so I would say, I don't know yet. Um, a couple sessions ago, we talked about faith and repentance, and in real-life situations, it does become... Sometimes they're very, very clear, and that's when it's easy. When it's harder is when they call the pastor. <laughs> so, um, but I would, I don't want to give false assurance, because if there is genuine saving faith, there will be a change of heart, and what will happen is this beginning of sanctification that we talked about. On the other hand, uh, David, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there are some areas of sin that become addictive to people, and I just have seen and heard stories of people in counseling things where, where sometimes people become believers, but there are certain areas of sin that, that they just don't, that aren't really given up right away entirely. So I'm, 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 my basic answer is I don't know. But I don't know is not, yes, you are a Christian. And that's very significant, I think. Okay. Good. Good. Anything else? Over here. Wayne, yeah. uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Romans 6.23 and, and yeah. Romans 8.1. Yeah. Uh, how, do the, how does the Roman Catholic Church deal with those two verses? Um, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, Don, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'd have to go back to my Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, or Catechism of the Catholic Church, and see what they would say. Whether, I'm not sure. I'd better not guess. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It was very interesting when I was in seminary, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, our professor invited a Roman Catholic theology professor, a priest, to come in and talk about the Roman Catholic view of justification. It was a fascinating discussion to get his viewpoint, but I, I don't remember if that came up or what the response was. Okay, where am I here? Not at 10.44, let me see. Um, I'll tell you what I think I'm going to do. 
I think I'm going to... Um, there is a question that comes up when Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works of the law. Then what are we, how do we understand James 2 that says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? We better take that next week because that's going to take a few minutes. I think there's a good answer to that. Uh, James is using justified in a different meaning, a different sense. Um, and, then, and then the question um, of practical applications. And, and I really need to say something about some current challenges that are coming uh, to this doctrine of justification as well. So uh, the reason I can hold that over for about 10 minutes more next time is that the unit on adoption next week, although... It's one of the most unbelievably wonderful blessings that God gives us. It's not going to take the whole hour to talk about adoption. So I'll, I'll finish up on justification next week. Um, about ten times here I've noticed Patrice out in the audience. Welcome back. And she has a new CD out of Christian music. We'll have to say something more about it, but it's good to see you back. Yeah. Good. Um, can I do that? Can I stop here because we're going to have the ballet group um, finish up? And I'll tell you, tell you what, let, let's see if I can just bring this all together. Once we have trusted in Christ for salvation, justification means, and this is something that, again, the, the whole secular world thinks is so strange and has all sorts of objections to, and really, really honestly, it counters people's pride to say that I'm accepted before God not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done. The hardest thing that causes people to resist this is their pride, isn't it? Because you have to say, wait a minute, I'm not good enough. Lord, will you accept me on the basis of Christ's merit and not my own? And so I wanted to bring it home to that and say, Let's realize that this is the most wonderful gift that God gives us, righteousness before him, and he'll welcome us into heaven forever based on Christ's work of righteousness for us. But it does mean that we're giving up our trust in our own righteousness, our trust in our own goodness, our trust in our own pride. And the blessing is, of course, there's no condemnation for us. There's great, great, great blessing now. Now, the other thing that we probably need to ask, well, then what about our obedience? Does it make any difference in the Christian life? And are there rewards and degrees of reward for obedience in the Christian life? Yes, there are, but that's, that's another story. So let's, let's end here, and um, we'll have uh, Anne and Ballet Sanctus, and I think they're going to do uh, something focused on the cross of Christ now for this last number, which is really appropriate, because here's where Christ took our sins, and then his obedience to the Father is, of course, earning for us a record of perfect righteousness as well. Okay, and we have to... John, okay, thanks.